Bible with you today, let's go to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verse number 3 in particular, but we will read, uh, or verse number 4 in particular, and we will read uh, verses 1 through 4 this morning. Um, Ephesians begins this way, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints which are at Ephesus, and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace be to you. And peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, it is my task and my privilege to preach your word today. Lord, you know the intent of my heart is simply to explain what you have said in your word. And today I admit, Lord, that I come up against a subject that I don't fully understand because you haven't fully revealed every detail of it. And so, Father, I pray and ask that you would help me to be faithful to say what you have said. And, Lord, not to try and to fill in the blanks that you have left empty. Lord, I pray for us as believers that we would be willing to wrestle with these doctrines, even those ones that sometimes feel as if they are over our head. And may we see the treasure that we have in Christ the blessings that you've bestowed upon us, and the sovereignty of your decision-making in eternity past. God, help us today to appreciate this, this teaching that you've given to us. In Jesus' name, amen. The title of today's message is Chosen in Christ, and I have to give you a warning up front. We are about to enter some deep theological waters if you have read any portion, any part of your Bible, you understand that some parts of it are very simple to understand. God has made the gospel extremely simple. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Man, that is simple. God bless. That is simple. We can preach that. We can teach that. A child can understand it and accept that. But we also understand that in back of that... What God did to save us is not simple. The fact that before the foundation of the world, it was predetermined that Jesus would go to the cross to die for our sins and that he would uh, be a substitutionary atonement for us and that in the mind of God there would be uh, this transposing of his blood, his righteousness to us to redeem us and to save us for all eternity. I'm telling you, those are some pretty deep subjects. And so I don't want to shy away from them. I don't want to be a shallow church. I don't want to be a shallow Christian. I don't want to just deal with the superficial, the easy to preach or the easy to understand. I want to be faithful to dig in and to do the work, to study, to show ourselves approved, rightly dividing the Word of God. And so we come to this text of verse today 
And in this verse, Paul dives right into the subject of divine election. Divine election. If you're not familiar with that, I'm going to take a few moments to explain the concept to you before we get into the verse. Warren Wiersbe, who's a respected Bible commentator, said of this verse, This is the wonderful doctrine of election, a doctrine that we cannot fully explain, but that we can fully enjoy. Do not try to explain away the mystery of grace. God did not choose us in ourselves. He chose us in Christ by grace. If you're not familiar with the doctrine of election, the doctrine of election has a tension about it. And the tension lies between the free will of man and the predestination of God. God has predetermined some things, and yet God has also given to us free will. And the tension lies between trying to reconcile those two. And uh, if you do any research, any reading on theology, you will find that this is one of the biggest subjects that has been written about, discussed, uh, argued throughout the centuries since the beginning of the church. And there are those who land heavy on the predestination of God and others that land heavy on the free will of man. And yet God presents too, like railroad tracks, parallel going as far as you you can see into distance and never once crossing and yet never separating. Both are presented in Scripture, but they seem to be irreconcilable by human reason. Did God choose me or did I choose God? Well, the answer is yes. (laughs) See, I don't understand that. You're on the same page with me. I know that the Bible says that God chose me, and the Bible says I had a burden to choose God, that there was a free choice delegated to me, but that within that choice, there was a choice that God had made in centuries past. I think Donald Gray Barnhouse illustrated it well. He was a pastor of uh, years gone by, early, uh, early 20th century, and he said, salvation is like a door in the shape of a cross. And above the door, it is inscribed with these words, Whosoever will may come. It's a narrow way. It's a narrow gate. But there's an open invitation that whosoever will may come. Once you enter through the door and look back, you will see these words written above the door on the inside. You were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. I think that is absolutely one of the best illustrations I have ever heard that really kind of describes the two sides of this issue. You are free to choose or to reject Christ, but when you choose Him and you enter into salvation, looking back, you discover that God had made a choice about you long ago. This is an excellent illustration of the doctrine of election. God gives us the freedom to choose, but in his foreknowledge, he already has chosen us. I think the danger comes when theologians try to explain the details of how election works when God has not yet fully revealed them all. 
When you read in the Bible, you will read about the mysteries of God. As a matter of fact, in Ephesians 3, Paul says that that there were mysteries of God that were concealed from the beginning, that he has been revealed to him, and now he's explaining them. And so you and I have to understand that a mystery... In the Bible, it's not a whodunit. It's not something that you can't figure out. It is something that God has revealed in part, but not in full. Some of those mysteries, like Gentile salvation, are fully revealed in the New Testament, but other mysteries, like election, are not fully revealed. We get more revelation in the New Testament, but we're not told all the details or the mechanics about election. Here's the good news. You don't have to understand election to be saved, right? I've flown on a lot of airplanes, and I don't know how it works. I don't know how you get a bus off the ground with hundreds of people and keep it in the air and then land it safely. I don't understand the aerodynamics. I don't understand the thrust. I don't understand understand that there are engineers who do, but I don't. And yet, I have flown on many a plane, and I'm here to tell you about it. I don't understand all the details about election, but I can stand here and say, I know that I'm saved because I chose God and God chose me. It's not up to us to try and predetermine who is elect and who is not elect. It is not up to us to neglect God's clear command to give the gospel to the whole world. You see, one of the dangers and one of the criticisms about people who hold strongly to election is that, well, the gospel is only for the elect, and we don't want to give the gospel to the non-elect because we don't want to give them a false hope of salvation if they're not elect. God never said that. Do you know what God said? Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Go ye therefore and teach all nations. You shall be witnesses unto me both in Judea, Jerusalem, Samaria, to the uttermost. He has told us clearly, go preach the gospel to every single creature. I don't know who's going to receive Christ and who's going to reject Christ, but God does. Our job is not to determine who's the elect and who's not the elect. Our job is to share the gospel and let God be God. Instead of trying to use it as a filter for the laws to determine who is worthy of the gospel and who isn't, we should count it as one of the blessings of being saved. Philip Graham Ryken, in his book, The Message of Salvation, wrote this, Election is best understood in hindsight, for it is only after coming to Christ that one can know whether one has been chosen in Christ. Those who make a decision for Christ find that God made a decision for them in eternity past. And so now that we've sketched out the edges... Right? We've kind of got an idea of what this is talking about, that, that, that uh, we were chosen in Him before the foundation of the world. We've kind of sketched out the edges of that. Now I want us to dissect the verse. Because you see, our job is to see what the Bible says. Not to bring our system of theology to tell us what this verse means within our belief system, but it is to simply let the Bible speak. I remember reading of Charles Spurgeon, an 18th 
uh, 1800s preacher in London, England, said that when he preached on Romans 9, he was accused of being a hyper-Calvinist. And when he preached on Romans 10, he was accused of being a hyper-Armenian. Why? Because in one, it talks about election and predestination. In the other, it talks about free will. And what he was saying is, I'm simply telling you what the Bible says. And in one verse, it makes the case that God has chosen you. And in the other, it makes the case that you are free to choose him. And so we can divide this verse into three parts as it answers three questions. The three questions are what, when, and why. What, when, and why? That's what this verse answers. The Apostle Paul's writing to the Ephesian Christians, and he tells them that according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, he answers three questions. What is it? When is it? Why is it? What? Well, it says, according as he hath chosen us in him. I'll tell you the first thing that it is. It's a blessing. It's a blessing. You see, this verse begins with an adverb, according to. It connects it to the previous verse, verse 3, qualifying it as one of the blessings that's referred to there in verse 3. In verse 3, he says, hey, look, we've been blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, according to he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. And so this choosing of God, it is a blessing. Why? Because nothing else matters if he did not choose to save us. Everything that follows is predicated on this. In fact, did you know that verses 3 through 14 are one sentence in the Greek? That we inserted the punctuation and separated it in different places to translate into the English to try and make it more understandable to us. But in the original Greek, it's one sentence from verse 3 to verse 14. And so you can't separate verse 4 from verse 3, and you can't separate verse 5 from verse 4. They are all interconnected. And he goes straight from saying we've been blessed with all blessings to say the chief of the blessings, the top of the list of the blessings, is that he chose you before the foundation of the world to make you holy and without blame. And then he's predestinated you to the adoption. And then he's accepted you in the beloved. And then he has sealed you with the Holy Spirit. All of those things flow out from this. What else is it? I'll tell you what else it is. It's the prerogative of God. What I mean by that is that God chose. Do you see it there in your verse? According to that, that's the connective, that's the adverb, connects this to the blessing of verse 3. But then it says, according as he hath chosen. Who is the he here? The he is God. God chose. And I'll tell you this, it is God's right to choose and his choice is not subject to my scrutiny or to your scrutiny. You, you can sit here and say, I don't understand how that works. It doesn't matter. It's God's prerogative. And you're not going to judge God one day. He's not going to answer to you for what he did and how he did it. Oh no, we're going to answer to him for what we did. And so it's God's prerogative. If he wants to choose some to salvation and others not, he can do that. Did he not tell us in Romans chapter 9 that he chose Jacob and not Esau? 
Did he not tell us that he chose Pharaoh to be a vessel of wrath? Did he not tell us that we are the clay and he is the potter and the clay doesn't get to say the potter? Why did you make me thus? And so when you and I come to a subject like this, we've got to come with the understanding that God is God and I am not. And he has the prerogative to do whatever he wants to do. And I can't object to it simply because it seems to be unfair in my mind. God chose us before the foundation of the world. That word that's used there, chose, means to call out. It is like what he did with Abraham. Do you remember in Genesis chapter 12, out of all the people on the planet, in Genesis chapter 12, God chose Abraham. Abraham. God elected Abraham. God said, I will make a covenant with you, Abraham, and I will bless you, and I will multiply you, and I will bless them who bless you, and I will curse them who curse you. But make no mistake about it, God chose Abraham. And then Abraham had two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. And Abraham said, God, take Ishmael, use him to make a nation. And God said, I've not chosen him. And God chooses Isaac. And then Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau. And God rejects Esau because he's a worldly man and he chooses Jacob. And then Jacob becomes Israel, the surname for the nation. And everybody in the line of Jacob is part of the chosen people of God. That's just the biblical precedent, is it not? And so whatever this means, I'm just telling you, God has the right to choose who he wants to choose and do what he wants to do. As a matter of fact, in John 15, 16, he made it very clear to his disciples, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. And so it's God's prerogative. God's made a choice. God has chosen to choose us. Who are the us? What are the us? We are believers. When Paul says he has chosen us, he is identifying the same people he already identified in verse 1 and verse 3. They are the saints. They are the ones who are faithful in Christ. They are the ones who are seated in heavenly places with Jesus. They are the saved ones. And so Paul is not saying to the whole world, well, some of y'all are elect, we're part of the elect. No, he's saying to the church. He's saying to the saved ones. We are elect. So however it works, I know that if I am saved, I am elect. I am chosen by God. But then there is this nuance that cannot be overlooked. According as he hath chosen us in him. You know, 12 times in the first 14 verses of Ephesians, in him is referenced. Christ is the epitome of all things. He is the center of all things. It is in Him that we are chosen. God didn't choose you or He didn't choose I because we had so much potential. He didn't look down through the ages and say, My, my, Justin will be such a good Christian if I just save him. I'm going to, I see the potential that he has. No, that's not how the choice was made. The choice was made in Christ. This reference to Christ is significant. God didn't choose us apart from Christ, but when God chose to send Christ to save us, He chose all those who would be born again in Christ. One of the 
forms or views or takes on election is the idea of corporate election. Let me see if I can try to explain it. In the Bible, it describes certain figures as federal heads. And so, Adam is a federal head. In Adam, we all have sinned. If you are a descendant of Adam, which we all are, in Adam, federal head, we have all sinned. Romans chapter 5 makes reference to that. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 talks about that. In Adam, the first Adam, he's the federal head. He's representative of all mankind. But then it also uses Christ as a federal head. That's for all redeemed men and women, born again men and women. We are represented in Christ. Well, there's other federal heads in Scripture. Another one is Jacob. Jacob is the federal head of the chosen people of Israel. He is surnamed as Israel, and then all of his descendants are known as Israel or Israelites. So when God chose Jacob... He chose everyone who would be born through Jacob. There's verses that make a reference to that, like Ezekiel 20, verse 5, and Isaiah 41, verse 8, Isaiah 45, 4, and uh, Psalm 105, verse 6, that in Jacob they were chosen. So, let me ask you, what made the difference between Jew, the chosen people of God, and Gentile? It was their descendancy, wasn't it? One is a descendant of Jacob. This group is a descendant of Jacob. This group is not a descendant of Jacob. So God chose Jacob, and in Jacob, all the others are chosen. Well, think about how this works. God chose us in Christ. What does that mean? That means that in eternity past, God chose Christ to be the Savior to be the Redeemer, to be the Messiah. And all those who come to be born again in Christ are chosen in Christ. And so really the choosing is the choosing of Christ to be our federal head, to be our representative. I'm no longer represented by Adam. I'm not in the line of Adam in my sin anymore. Now I am represented by Christ. I am in the line of Christ. I was never in the line of Jacob. I was outside of the chosen people of God. But in Christ, God has done away with Jew and Gentile, and he's made one new man in Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, it says, and so now my federal head is in Christ so that when I get to heaven, the only explanation as to why I have a place there is because I'm in Christ. Not because I've done so well or done so much or because I was so special that God chose me. When did this happen? Well, we are given the time frame in which this happened. It goes on to say this, before the foundation of the world. So according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. You know there's five references to before the foundation of the world in the New Testament. And as you begin to read those five references to before the foundation of the world, all of them point to the same thing. It points to the salvation of God in 
Christ. There were things that happened before God ever created the world. First, I would say there was a plan that was made before the world was created. In 1 Peter 1.20, it says that it was foreordained before the foundation of the world. What is that foreordination? That is a pre-planning of God. Before God created Adam and Eve, before Adam and Eve partook of the fruit and sin, before any of that happened, before the foundation of the world, God was planning to send Christ to redeem us. Why? Because he knew we were going to fall into sin. He knew that we would not be able to redeem ourselves. He knew that the only way we could be saved is if a member of the Trinity went and stood in our place and took our punishment and gave us his righteousness. And so a plan was made. As a matter of fact, in Matthew 13, 35, it talks about a secret from before the foundation of the world. That means that it was a plan that God had made, but it was not one that had been published to all mankind. Not only was it a plan, but it was settled in the mind of God. Hebrews 4.3 says the works were finished before the foundation of the world. How is that possible? The work is done on the cross of Calvary. How could the Bible say the works were finished before the foundation of the world? Because in the mind of God, it is as good as done. God does not travel in linear time like you and I do. He, is, he transcends time, space, and matter. He always has been. He always will be. He is the God that is. When he identified himself to Moses, he did it in a very unique way, did he not? He said, I am that I am. He's not talking like Popeye here. I am that I am. He is saying, I exist. I am from beginning to end, past, present, future. It is not separated in the mind of God. So if in eternity past, God determined that he was going to save us in Christ, the work was as good as done. There was nothing that could stop it. You say, my plans don't work that way. You're not God. And I can say, I plan to go do this tomorrow, but there are variables that can interrupt my plan. There are forces at work that can overtake me uh, that could keep me from completing my plan. But if God says, I plan to save these people in my son, Jesus Christ, is there anything that can delay that? Is there anyone who can stop that? Is there any force that can overthrow that? Or if he plans it, is it as good as done? The answer is, it's as good as done. How do I know this? Revelation 13, 8. The lamb slain from before the foundation of the world. I told you it's deep theological waters. And some of you may be bobbing a little bit right now, trying to catch your breath. But isn't this the treasury of Scripture? Isn't this God pulling back the curtain of heaven a little bit and saying, let me show you something that went on behind the scenes. Why all you're seeing is what physically manifested when Christ became a man and went to the cross and died and you're believing in that by faith. Let me tell you something. This was settled before I ever created the world, before you were ever a thought. 
As a matter of fact, I like what Charles Spurgeon said about it. He says, it's a good thing that God chose me before I entered the world because he had never chosen me after I entered the world. Christ was slain from before the foundation of the world. In the mind of God, it was already settled. It was as good as done. And then... The fifth reference to before the foundation of the world, Hebrews 9.26, is a reference that it was completed by Christ at Calvary. It was completed by Christ at Calvary. It was a plan by God from the foundation of the world, but it was manifest in the incarnation of Christ, and it was sealed on the cross when he died, and he took the wrath of God for our sins. It was settled in the mind of God in eternity past, and it was brought to its completion at the cross. And so the cross becomes that great landmark in the landscape of history that we look back to and we have a testimony, we have an evidence for us that the work was finished, that Jesus took on human flesh so that he could give his life and his blood for our sins. Why? Why did God choose us before the foundation of the earth? The verse answers that, that we should be holy. That we should be holy and without blame before him in love. One of the abuses of the doctrine of election is that I'm chosen. I don't have to worry about a thing. I can live any way that I want to. That's wrong. God didn't choose you so that you could live in sin. He chose you so you could be holy. You see, without the choosing of God, you cannot be holy. In your sin, you cannot reform yourself. You cannot live a holy life. You cannot bring yourself into alignment with God. That only comes through Christ, and that only comes because God chose to make us holy through Christ. Why did He choose us? He chose us to save us. God says in 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16, Be ye holy, for I am holy. Actually, it's a quotation of Leviticus eleven forty four when God says to his first chosen people, Israel, Be ye holy, for I am holy. Do you understand that that is not just a, a goal to strive for? It is a standard that has to be met. It means that, 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 that it was the only way to restore our relationship to God that had been severed by sin. I cannot come into God's presence if I am not holy. I cannot go into eternity in heaven if I am not holy. And the only way for me to be made holy was to be chosen in Christ, for Christ to save me and to make me holy. As a matter of fact, it is in Ephesians chapter 4 that it says that we put on the new man which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness, Ephesians 4.24. And so he saved us to make us holy. He chose us to make us holy. I'm telling you what a blessing that is to realize that without God choosing to make me holy, I could never be holy. 
And if I was never holy, I could never come into a relationship with God. I could never come into fellowship with God. I could only experience the wrath of God. And so God chooses us to save us, to sanctify us, to make us holy. Not only that, he chose us to justify us. You see, that phrase, that end of the verse goes on to say this. That, there's the purpose, that we should be holy and without blame. That we should be holy and without blame. These two are conjoined together to help us understand that being made holy wasn't our initial condition of salvation. And then we've got to keep our nose clean and do what's right to maintain that holiness so that when we get to the judgment of God, we are still found holy. He says, no, I chose you in Christ to make you holy and to keep you holy so that you will be found without blame when you stand before me. Without blame or blameless is also translated in other places without blemish. It is used in reference to Christ being the lamb without blemish that was slain before the foundation of the earth. It means to be found faultless or unblameable. What is that? That's justification. You see, justification is one of those doctrines that talks about how we can be made right in the eyes of God. If I know all the sins that I've committed and God knows more than what I know, how can I ever justify myself before God? And when Jesus saved us, he justified us. Some people have said that justification means just as if I had never sinned, but it goes deeper than that. Others improved upon that, and they said, well, it's just as if I had never even been a sinner, being made like Adam in his original creation. But it goes beyond that. And somebody rightly arrived at the point where they said to be justified is to be just as Christ. It is to be seen in Christ through the eyes of God, so that when God sees you and God sees me, he finds us blameless. You want a biblical definition of justification? Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ, you are not condemnable. You say, I haven't always been perfect. Nobody has but Jesus. And in him we have his righteousness transposed to us. The final reason why that he gives us in this verse is because he loves us. According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. In love is the only explanation why God did what he did. It's the only explanation. Why did God choose me? Why did God choose you? How many of y'all remember how bad a sinner you were? You are, right? You ever wonder why God chose you? Why did he choose me? The answer is love. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. 
That's what Jesus did for us when he chose us. When he made that choice in eternity past that he was going to save us, he chose us. He wasn't just choosing a plan of salvation. He wasn't just choosing to create an organization. He was choosing you and he was choosing me. He was choosing to go to that cross for you. He was choosing to go to that cross for me. He was choosing to suffer the wrath of God for you. He was choosing to suffer the wrath of God for me. Because he loves us. And his love said, you're worth it to me. I think Ephesians 5 explains it best. If you're there in the book of Ephesians, would you just flip over a couple of pages to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 through 27. The same language is used that is used there in chapter 1, verse 4, of being without blame or without blemish. And notice how it's described here in Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it, the church, to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. That explains the why. It's because God loves you like a husband loves his wife. God laid down his life for you like a husband ought to be willing to lay down his wife. He did that so that he could wash away our sin and present us spotless and without wrinkle and holy and without blemish at that day. So here's what I know. God made a decision in eternity past that is going to last in eternity future. And if I Choose Christ in the present. I am secure for all eternity. While there are some things that make me scratch my head that I still can't understand and I still can't fully explain, let me tell you, there is an encouragement that this gives me. There is a security that this gives me because before the world was created, God in His sovereign grace and love made the decision to choose us by choosing Christ to die for us so that He could redeem us from our sin by making us holy through justification in order to spend eternity with us. And so the choice that God made was choosing you to be His companion in all eternity. And so he chose you. Before the foundation of the world, before you drew your first breath, before you committed your first sin, he chose you. And he made you holy. And he made you without blemish. And he loves you more deeply than you can even imagine. Would you bow with me? So we bow our heads. I'm sure there are many thoughts that are generated through this subject. But the task before us is simply to say, what does that verse mean? What did it mean when it says that God chose us? That God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world.
that we might be holy and without blame before him in love. I know this. It means that God loves me and that God loves you. And that God made a choice that he will never reverse. He made a choice knowing what the cost would be before he had to pay it. And he went ahead and chose anyway. What it says to me is that I am secure in Christ. Because it's not me holding on to him. It's him holding on to me. Oh Lord, you know that I've done my very best to try and explain your truth the best way that I know how without presupposition, without prejudice. Lord, I admit that I don't fully understand. But Lord, I do fully appreciate the fact that you chose us in Christ. Lord, I want to revel in that. I want to rejoice in that. I want to find security in that. I want to understand, Lord, that we did not earn your love, but that you bestowed it, you freely gave it to us. And that there's nothing that we can do to lose your love. That even when we mess up and we stumble and we fall, you still love us and saved us, just as you chose Jacob, even though his path wasn't perfect. Just as you chose Abraham, whose path wasn't perfect. Just as you chose Noah, whose path wasn't perfect. It didn't reverse the choice. And so, Lord, I pray for those souls that struggle with the idea of being secure in their salvation, that they would understand that they have been chosen by you in Christ and that there is no stronger bond, no stronger security than that. And so, Lord, I pray and ask that you would help us to live, that we would live out of this identity as the chosen ones of God. Help us, Lord, to take the gospel to the world so that others may answer the call to salvation. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you